Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. Each week, we navigate the most important changes that affect pharmacotherapy. Plus, you can earn pharmacy and medicine CE credit. We know you're busy, so let us bring the learning to you. Click on Claim CE Credit in the show notes below. Now let's welcome your host, Jeff Wall, as he discusses this week's clinical practice game changers. Hello and welcome to another episode of Game Changers Clinical Conversations. I am your host, Jeff Wall, Professor of Pharmacy Practice at Drake University. How you doing? Hope you are okay in your world and things are going okay. I'm a little on the, under the weather, but thanks to uh, Jake Galdo, who's always my co-pilot and, and uh, my friend, he's helping me get through this and, and we're getting going to get uh, this recorded today is what we're going to do. So thank you for listening. If this, if this is the first time you've ever listened, we really appreciate it. We really try here to give you the latest information when it comes to uh, anything having to do with pharmacotherapy, and that includes the latest you know, drugs, the latest studies, the latest guidelines, anything from the FDA or the CDC. If it's going to affect the, the boots on the ground practitioner, we really want to do it here, and that's why we try to present it as quickly as we can to you in an evidence-based format here at Game Changers. Uh, for those of you who were listening last week, we are kind of doing a deep dive into a supplement that was published uh, just a couple weeks ago in uh, um, Clinical Infectious Diseases, which is the uh, Journal of the Infectious Disease Society of America, where they do a review of the literature that supports the CDC 2021 sexually transmitted infection guidelines. And so the, you know, the guidelines themselves have some background to them, but they're not really in-depth. And so what the authors of literature reviews have done is basically just said, where did the CDC get these guidelines from? And is there any information you can have to help Im, you know, implement that into your practice? So uh, last week, we talked about a couple. This week this is part two of three, and we will be talking about herpes and uh, syphilis. And so there's been a couple of changes in the guidelines from those. So we're going to discuss both of those. So first up, we are going to talk about uh, herpes simplex. And this is a very long document. This spends quite a bit of time talking about uh, herpes in both non-HIV uh, patients and HIV-infected patients. For time's sake, we're going to focus on the non-HIV-infected patients uh, and, and mostly adults. So that's what we're really going to focus on. That's kind of going to be the focus of the, this first part of the podcast. As we all know, general herpes is, is a chronic sexually transmitted infection characterized by recurrent self-limited general ulcers and caused by two types of the virus, herpes simplex 1 and herpes simplex 2. The first, herpes simplex 1, is associated with both oral and genital infection, while herpes simplex 2 can nearly exclusively causes genital disease. Uh, they're very prevalent. HCV1 is actually prevalent in about half the U.S. population. So if you're one of those people who happens to get cold sores, welcome to that club, I guess. And uh, about 12.1% of patients with HSV2 of genital infections is very common. So again, it's an incredibly common sexually transmitted infection for HSV2. And it is common, especially as you might imagine, in younger patients, ages 14 to 49 is actually the highest prevalence for that. Underrecognized in most people, there was the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey Study and they did a study where they looked at patients who, a group of patients who were HSV surge positive and, and found that only 13% of them had actually ever been full, formally diagnosed with, with genital herpes. Uh, and the, the problem with that is this beyond just the, the spreading aspect, extra genital manifestations of genital herpes infections such as uh, HSV meningitis and hepatitis uh, can occur. And I can tell you, I've seen both in my career and fortunately both did not do well in, in the cases that I've seen. So it isn't just a, an irritant, as it were, or kind of a kind of a, a nuisance or, an, you know, maybe an embarrassing type of thing. It definitely has some some impact in patients and may actually have life-threatening impacts in these patients. So so like all of these evidence bases, what did they do? They basically kind of divided what they were doing in, into several sections, diagnosis, 
Is there any new way to diagnose these diseases? Uh, classification, do we, can, you know, do we stratify these by certain ways? And then treatment updates. Unlike the previous uh, sets of guidelines, the groups that reviewed the evidence base for these CDC recommendations decided to, to do kind of more of a guideline thing where they looked at key clinical questions. And so um, the first key clinical question were, was what, what are the optimal tests for either HSV1 or 2? Does presence or absence of a ulcer or lesion or an outbreak make a difference on that? They point out that, as you might imagine, PCR or NAAT testing is now the standard of care for uh, detecting herpes. So as of 2019, 17 different PCR type tests approved by the FDA. So most labs are going to have access to them. Um, they vary in rate and sensitivity, sensitivity, but almost all of them have um, over 90% sensitivity and specificity. So for all practical purposes, if you live in, in any decent size city that's got a lab big enough to have one of these, you're going to have a very accurate test PCR assay that is going to be easy to use and, and, and get same-day results. It is interesting to note that the sensitivity and specificity of all of these tests drop dramatically if the absence of genital ulcers occurs. And so the guidelines are very clear that in the absence of genital ulcers, you should not routinely check for HSV in these patients because of the intermittent nature of genital shedding. So that's a key piece, I think, is, you know, just testing to be testing that the patient doesn't have genital lesions. Your specificity and sensitivity of the test is going to go way down. You should probably wait until that actually occurs. They talk about serologic testing of HSV and again point out that, again, in, in, in most labs, you don't really need to do that anymore because of the PCR testing, but point out that in some cases that, that serologic testing can be used and just like HIV and other types of, of viral tests, it, the gold standard is Western blot that targets antibodies to HSV antigens. And when you compare that to the gold standard, most uh, currently easily available uh, serologic tests both lack sensitivity and specificity, which can result in, in false negatives. They basically say that, you know, yes, you absolutely needed to, to use a serologic test. You probably want to take your sample to someplace where they can do Western blot analysis. But in, in the absence of that, PCR testing is really the way to go. It asks when should serologic uh, diagnoses of HSV-2 in particular be obtained. And they, they mentioned that the USP-STF guidelines recommend against screening among asymptomatic adults and, and adolescents. And they say, given the current limitations of commercially available serologic tests, this approach is reasonable for asymptomatic patients who have a low pretest risk of probability, which they define as few lifetime sexual partners, no known HSV positive, seropositive partners, and no genital symptoms, basically. Then we get into therapy. And they ask about, you know, okay, so with updates on treatment as far as herpes is concerned. And they point out that the pattern of the lesion formation is very variable from patient to patient. Some patients have, you know, one breakout of uh, her, uh, genital or oral herpes and then it goes away and they never have it again. Some people have episodic therapy several times a year. Some people have suppressive episodes where they get it all the time and, and might need to be on suppressive therapy to prevent that. So given that, they say that there is no one standard way to treat an HSV genital uh, to a, a genital infection. Uh, they point out that there are several uh, commercially available uh, now all generic medications such as acyclovir and dalacyclovir that have been studied. They're all FDA approved, both first clinical episodes of herpes for episodic therapy when people do have an outbreak and for suppressive therapy for patients who have multiple outbreaks and just want to prevent them from happening. They all seem to work about equally well to each other. And really, it comes down to cost and it comes down to uh, ease of use. Frankly, I usually recommend valacyclovir just because it's the pro drug of acyclovir. 
we know from early clinical studies of alacyclovir get that get clinical levels that are actually actually approach intravenous acyclovir levels. And so and it's now generic and relatively inexpensive. So valacyclovir is usually what I recommend for episodic treatment as well as suppressive therapy. It's also really well tolerated. People rarely have unusual side effects from it as well. They ask what the key management approaches are. Then they mentioned that the, that the two important goals of the management of general herpes are one, to prevent symptoms, and two, prevent transmission to other partners. Given these goals, it largely depends on the viral type, HSV-1 versus HSV-2, the presence or absence of symptoms or lesions, and that symptomatic HSV-2 infection can be, can be managed by suppressive therapy, which is, again, daily medication to suppress recurrences and prevent transmissions to other sexual partners, or episodic therapy. And it, it really is, with no data showing that one's more effective than another, a conversation that the patient has with their, with their provider about what's going to be easier to do. Some people actually find it just easier to take one pill every day for suppression and kind of be done with it, and I can certainly understand that. Recurrences are less frequent with uh, general HSV-1 infections compared to general HSV-2, and it's just rare to see that in general. Given this, they say that episodic therapy is preferred over suppressive therapy in patients with general HSV-1 infections. So if you know for sure you have general HSV-1 infection, episodic therapy is probably going to be cheaper for you and easier to do because it's just that recurrences are much less frequent. They note that there are several new drugs in the pipeline. I think one of the uh, outcomes of the covid pandemic is we're going to see an explosion in new antivirals here, I think, in the next 10 or 15 years. Helicase primase inhibitors have been studied in early phase trials and have, and have been shown some pretty good effectiveness in active back superior to acyclovir, but they have not yet been evaluated in complete phase three studies and are not FDA approved at this time, so it'll probably have to be a couple of, of years before that true. If you are a patient where you have someone who, for example, might be allergic to acyclovir or is immunocompromised and things aren't working, they do note that there is an open-label study evaluating one of these helicase primase drugs called pratilavir and that there's a, a, an open-access, early-access program, which has been granted. And if you go, we'll have that in our show notes about how to access that if you happen to have a, an unusual patient that might be a candidate for that. And, of course, they need the clinical trial data, which is nice. Then they talk about a couple of extra genital infections associated with herpes. And the one that's the biggie and the one that God knows I've seen several times in my career is, is HSV meningitis or HSV encephalitis. And this is a very, very serious infection. I've seen it, I don't know, a couple dozen times in my career. And it is just what it says it is. So it's meningitis, just like you would have bacterial meningitis where you have an inflammation of the meninges, or actually uh, in, in the case of, of HSV encephalitis, an actual infection of, of one part of the brain. So it's not just the surrounding material of the brain, but one part of the brain. HSV meningitis, fortunately, is pretty rare, so is encephalitis. Um, HSV is it, it's almost always caused by HSV-2, um, more commonly affects women than men, and it's characterized by all the signs you would see in meningitis, like headache, photophobia, fever, and then meningeal signs like you know, stiff neck and stuff like that. Uh, cerebral spinal fluid analysis shows what you would expect to see. So you like, see a lymphocytic pleocytosis, so you wouldn't see a lot of neutrophils. You'd see a lot of lymphocytes uh, accompanied by a mildly elevated protein and normal glucose. Um, and nowadays, uh, most hospitals have the ability to do uh, rapid PCR testing of the CSF, so you'll be able to find out pretty right, right away if that's a possibility. Um, or you can do a separate PSR, PCR test just for herpes. We actually, in my hospital, do both. And then if they have that, that, that pretty much sets the diagnosis of HSV meningitis. Treatment is pretty much the same as you would for any invasive disease, invasive herpes disease, and especially in immunocompromised or immunocompromised patients, which is high-dose intravenous acyclovir, uh, 10 milligrams per kilogram IV every eight hours. It's a revolution of fever of headache, and then you can follow it up with valacyclovir, uh, one gram TID to complete a 14-day course. As I mentioned, valacyclovir has uh, kinetics that are actually pretty close to IVA cyclovir, and that's what I've recommended for years as well. 
it is essential to distinguish between cases of, of encephalitis versus meningitis. I was always taught that encephalitis patients tend to have more focal symptoms, almost like they're having a stroke. So they might have, you know, a chase troop or weakness on one side and stuff like that. Stuff you wouldn't really expect to see with meningitis. Unfortunately, the morbidity and mortality of HSV encephalitis is horrible. And the few cases I've seen over the years have usually had pretty poor outcomes. I will never forget a case I had years ago where a poor patient had HSV encephalitis where we got an MRI and the organism had essentially destroyed the entire frontal lobe of the brain. I mean, there was just no frontal lobe there anymore. And uh, even a dumb pharmacist like me who went, wow, I mean, I can't read an MRI at all. I'm like, uh, shouldn't there be something there? And uh, yeah, it was um, a pretty tragic case. And it tells you how devastating HSV encephalitis can be. Uh, you treat again with high dose IV acyclovir, but unfortunately the outcomes, even if they survive, unfortunately are pretty pretty poor. But that's, that's how, you, how you see that. Hopefully you won't see a lot of that in, in your career because it's, it's a pretty devastating disease. Uh, but we are going to talk about syphilis today in our second part of our, our podcast. Unfortunately, you know, even though the good news is that we usually have really good treatments for syphilis, the bad news is that like a lot of other STIs, the total number of cases is skyrocketing. Um, and, and there seems to be two concomitant epidemics going Going on in the United States with syphilis, one among men who have sex with men, and then a more recent epidemic among uh, people linked to drug use. And so, bottom line is you're just going you're just going to see this as well. Uh, this also means an increase in rates in women and congenital syphilis is on the rise. And I've actually seen two cases just in the last year here in, in my neck of the woods. Um, so, so yeah, something you'll definitely see. So again, just like with the, with the herpes section, they did a, a, a deep dive review of the literature that supports the CDC guidelines. They also did the key question part as well. So again, they looked at diagnosis, classification, and, and treatment, and they divided that in, in, into, into key questions. There wasn't a lot on diagnosis or stratification. That's probably just because syphilis has been known now for you know, hundreds of years, and I think people have done a pretty good job of stratifying it and, and things along those lines. We have fairly good tests for it. So there's much more meat, I think, in the treatment part of this section. So the first key question they ask is, you know, are there relevant new data on syphilis treatment or management, particularly when penicillin therapy is not feasible? Now, as we all know, long-acting uh, intramuscular penicillin is long been considered the drug of choice for especially early early phase syphilis and works very, very well even after it's been used now for 70 years. So they said, well, is there any, any new data looking at, at other treatments and things along those lines? They do mention a study that took a look at one dose of benzathine penicillin, so that long, the long-acting penicillin given IM versus three doses weekly to see if there was any difference between the two in early phase of syphilis and found actually there was no difference. And so it seemed that for most patients, a single dose of, of long-acting intramuscular penicillin seems to work just perfectly fine unless they're allergic or something along those lines. Even HIV-infected patients, the single dose seems to work pretty decent. And so really remains the, the, the drug of choice to treat syphilis. They note that doxycycline is an acceptable alternative if for treating early and late latent synthesis of penicillin cannot be used. There was a small study that took a look at azithromycin as a possible single two-gram dose for treating early syphilis in some settings. However, they note that treponema, which is the bug that causes syphilis, can develop chromosomal mutations that, that lead to azithro and other macrolide resistance fairly quickly. And so in the United States, macrolides are not recommended for the treatment of syphilis. They say another alternative for someone who, for maybe an example, may be allergic to penicillin, thing along those lines, or for later level syphilis is ceftraxone. 
either intravenously or intramuscularly one gram a day for 10 days is a reasonable treatment for, for early syphilis. So basically the treatments, the update, as they said, is that, you know, the tried and true of, of a single dose of benzathine, penicillin seems to work fine. It doesn't seem like giving more doses, especially in early disease, does anything. And it doesn't seem like macrolides really are going to come to the rescue in patients, for example, who are penicillin allergic or anything along those lines. So I thought that was kind of interesting. The second key question they ask is, is, is there relevant new data on managing patients without serologic, adequate serologic decline or seroconversion after uh, appropriate therapy? So, of course, you know, one of the things you're going to want in these patients is that after they're treated, they're going to seroconvert, right? And uh, there's been a lot of research now on a lot of different definitions of what, what exactly are we trying to find in patients after they've had syphilis and been treated for it. And so they spend a, quite a bit of the article talking about, you know, what, what terms are we talking about here? So the first term that they talk about is seropast. This term talks about that refers to the failure of non-trepanemal antibody titers to serorevert, in other words, become non-reactive. The failure of non-trepanemal antibody titers to demonstrate a fourfold decline six to 12 months after therapy for early syphilis and 12 to 24 months after therapy for late syphilis, which is often or sometimes referred to as a serologic non-response or both. So again, after you treat syphilis, the antibody level should decline because you're not having flow, uh, you know, treponema floating through your bloodstream or you know any, any of your organs or stuff like that. So that's what they talk about serofast is again this failure to, to have that happen. Multiple studies suggest that a substantial proportion of patients with syphilis, including uh, many patients who have HIV infection, will remain serofast, and that an even larger proportion will not serorevert. So the question is then, is that bad? And that's the focus of several ongoing studies now. Is you know do those patients tend to have worse outcomes? Do they need to be retreated? Is retreatment in these particular patients beneficial? That's the ongoing studies that are, are taking a look at the, at the answer to this question. Is actually apparently something I didn't know until I'd read some of the stuff that is is an ongoing area of, of research that's that's actually quite a lot got a lot of research underway. And I suspect COVID has kind of put a stop to that. But now hopefully we'll see more research into what to do with patients who get treatment. But there it doesn't seem like their immune system is is really responding um, appropriately as you would expect to see in that treatment. So let's kind of stay tuned for that. Key question three, you know, what are the optimal diagnostic and management approachments for some of the very unusual manifestations of syphilis, like neurosyphilis, ocular syphilis, and otic syphilis? I didn't even know there was such a thing as otic syphilis. And they talk about, obviously, these are late-stage manifestations of syphilis. They note that in, in a previous standard of care for, for example, uh, ocular syphilis was to go ahead and get cerebral spinal fluid by a lumbar tap to make sure the patient didn't have concomitant neurosyphilis. They note that more recent studies suggest that's probably not necessary as nearly 40 patient, percent of patients in previous studies have not had CSF abnormalities. And so it used to be believed that something you just had to automatically do. And, there's, and they're like, no, you probably, unless the patient has other diagnostic clues, like you think the patient may have neurosyphilis, it doesn't automatically mean you need to do a tap on them if they have ocular otic synthesis to rule out neurosyphilis, which I thought was kind of interesting. They also note that, that it doesn't help you make even the diagnosis of otic or ocular synthesis because about 90% of those patients will have, have normal CSF and they won't have anything in, in their CSF to make you think that they won't help you confirm the diagnosis, basically. Um, they note that you know all three of these manifestations of syphilis are, are, are fairly deadly or, or dangerous and can be, can be organ-threatening or life-threatening, and you really should not mess around. And, and if, you're, if you're not in a place where you can easily test these patients and easily treat these patients, they deserve prompt 
transfer to a place that can do all the stuff and start treatment as rapidly as possible as you can on them. So the fourth key question they ask is, are there any data about preventing syphilis, which again is something I was unaware of. Apparently, there has been some interest in using doxycycline for both pre-exposure uh, prophylaxis and post-exposure prophylaxis, something I had never heard of before until I had uh, done some of the research for this podcast. They talk about a small pilot feasibility study as well as a randomized controlled trial and found that in the results of both these studies suggested that there is actually a decrease in syphilis and chlamydia for post-exposure prophylaxis in men having sex with men taking doxycycline. Again, I'd never heard that before. So again, this is maybe an area I'm just not as familiar with, but they don't take a stand on recommending or not, and they say that several large other studies are ongoing. They note that they do have some concern, as you might expect, that if this becomes kind of the standard, will we be able to continue to use doxycycline as an alternative, uh, for example, in penicillin-allergic patients who actually do get syphilis? So that may be one of the reasons why they're waiting for a large randomized control trial before they actually go ahead and recommend this. But yes, yeah, so that it's an exciting thing that we might be able to use uh, doxy as at least post-exposure prophylaxis in patients at high risk, so something I'd never heard of before. And then they finally note that even though the uh, CDC guidelines have, have recently been updated, the IDSA themselves will be releasing a comprehensive update to the treatment of syphilis with extensive revisions. That's their words, not mine, which tells me that uh, for those of you with infectious diseases, you get to have a whole other set of guidelines you need to memorize that are probably going to be quite different than uh, the guidelines that you previously remembered. Yay! <laughs> Good news for our infectious disease colleagues out there. But apparently... Uh, they note in the in the in the paper that yeah there's been uh, numerous new things that have come out and a well timed and well revised guideline is due and should be out any time now so keep an eye out for that so bottom line is that you know again two you know serious uh, sexual disease transmitted infections have come out we've kind of reviewed the literature surrounding where the CDC guidelines came from and some there's some new some new interesting pieces but I think. For the pharmacists out there in particular, you know, fortunately, guidelines as far as treatment haven't changed a ton. And, you know, penicillin is still the drug of choice for syphilis. And acyclovir or valacyclovir is still the drug of choice for herpes. It doesn't look like those are going to change anytime soon. So that's it for this week. This is part two of the uh, IDSA uh, uh, evidence-based review for the CDC guidelines. Next week, we'll do part three, where we'll kind of complete the circle. We have two or three sexually transmitted infections to talk about, including uh, uh, chlamydia and gonorrhea. So we'll be talking about them as well. Uh, as always, thanks for listening. That's it. We'll see you next week. But until then, remember, time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. Thanks for listening, then. Claim your CE credit by clicking on the link in the show notes and check out CE Impact's other education at ceimpact.com, where we curate the most important information in pharmacy and medicine to deliver straight to you. Join today to connect your learning to practice.